John, the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read to you from verses 28 of chapter 18 through to verse 6 of um, chapter 19. So John 18, verse 28, through to verse 5 of chapter 19. Of course, picking up the story where Jesus is brought before Pilate. Jesus is here, brought before Pilate. So verse 28 says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas onto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but, they, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, we would not have delivered him unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, saying, Thou this thing, or thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What have thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate, once again, therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had saw this, he went out unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19. Continuing the story. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, 
king of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus, then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priest therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. How many times have we read that passage? How many times have we thought about that passage? And within there we could spend much time. We read the account of Jesus before Pilate. Jesus had been handed over to the Roman governor for judgment. The Jews wanting Jesus to be put to death. You'll remember if you read through the book of Leviticus that the standard was that if anyone is going to be put to death, there must be two or three witnesses. And as you probably read earlier on in this portion, and particularly in others, that they were scurrying around. They needed witnesses. They needed to find witnesses. You read a similar account in Matthew Pilate saith unto them, verse 22 of of chapter 27, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all said unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out, all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. You see, this was the Jesus that had lived among them. This was the Jesus that had done multitudes of miracles among them. As Russell again mentioned this morning, only a week or so before he was handed over, this was the Jesus who they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Yet here we find that they're crying out for a robber. They're crying out for the freedom of Barabbas. Much could be said about that. You've probably heard it from me. That that tells us one thing for sure. That men have really loved darkness rather than light. But tonight I want us to look at the man Pilate. As we read through the Gospels in regard to the crucifixion of Christ, we have Pilate as a huge and prominent character. All of that was about, of all that was about to unfold. We've, we've read probably 10 to 15 verses and Pilate is, is very much at the centre. The chief priests and the elders led Christ to Pilate. As we've already read and noted These Jews, these high priests, wanted to have Christ put to death. They wanted rid. They wanted rid of this man. They wanted him out the way. He was causing too much havoc.
We noted, didn't we, that there in those verses that I read, that it was not lawful for for them, the Jews themselves, to put him to death. Therefore, that is the reason they took him over to the Roman Pontius Pilate. They wanted this man charged and they wanted this man dead. We read of Pilate in other places, sending Christ to Herod. Let, let Herod deal with this. Herod sends him right back. You read that in Luke 23. We read of the interrogation of Christ by Pilate, as we've just noted there, John 18 into chapter 19, further forward. We read of Pilate's wife, you remember, warning her husband to have nothing to do with this just man. We read Pilate offering the people a release of either Barabbas or the Christ. Pilate takes center stage in many ways. And of course we read through this fiery trial that Pilate in the end scourged Jesus and delivered him up to be crucified. Again, how many times have we read this narrative? We're coming up to Easter, believe it or not. We've read this, haven't we? We've read it many times and so we ought. How Christ was treated. The rejection of Christ was public, friends. It was very, very public. Tonight I want to point out to you, and as it stands out to me, and I'm sure it will do you if it has not already, that there's something that Pilate said which was true and was profound. Let us note them. John 18, verse 38. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, He went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault at all. Chapter 19, verse 4. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then we hear it again in verse 6. At the end there, take ye him. And crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Three times we hear Pilate say these words. I find no fault in this man. Now we must note that this is not to give any, any accreditation or, or thumbs up to Pontius Pilate. If he had been an honest governor and was willing to serve the cause of justice, if he was going to do that which really he should have done, if he cared about justice, if he was the good man that he ought to have been, he would at this point, he would at this point, let the Christ be released. Yet we know, don't we, that he wiggled his way around 
every which way he could. And he was not such a man, was he? No, he was not. He revered men, position, and power much more than he did God. He was a Roman after all. And they were brutes. They were brutes. This man was a coward. And yes, he was guilty of the murder of Jesus Christ. Yet as we focus on these words, we must say, in these words, I find no fault in him. Pilate was right. Pilate was right. Pilate saw no threat to the state from this man. He wasn't going to bring any real problem there. So Pilate thought. No real threat to Caesar. This man is guiltless. This man is not a real issue. And Pilate wants to try and get rid of him. He even offers up to give the people back the power. Surely they must see. But no, they cried out all the more for for the release of a notorious sinner named Barabbas. But three times, Pilate makes it publicly clear. He even goes and says, I wash my hands with this. Signifying, as he thinks, his innocence. My friends, though Pilate was of not, of course, understood his own words, I don't think he really understood what he was saying. What he had said publicly, that this man, with this man Christ, I find no fault. But I want to say he made a public declaration Like a lamb without blemish, there was no fault in him. This is the Christ. You know that? Do you know that tonight? That this man to whom was stood in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God, and even out of the mouth, if you like. Remember the story in the Old Testament. Out of the, out, out of the mouth of an ass. Is something profound declared that this man has no fault. This man has no fault. In this, Pilate was right. In this, Pilate was right. And we see this theme. And I want to call it tonight the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. His sinlessness. We heard from our brother Chris over a few, few months, over two meetings of the man and God, two natures. We know that God does not sin. How can God sin? But here we have an incarnate son, born in the likeness of man. And what we see throughout the whole of Scripture, that the sacrifice that is required must be without blemish, must have no fault. We see its typology all over the Old Testament. 
The sacrifice had to be without spot or wrinkle. Mentioned many times before, if you read through Leviticus, if you read through Deuteronomy, if you read through those books, they tell us of a a need of a sacrifice. And if you marked it, it'd be every 10, 12 verses where you will see that the sacrifice must be without blemish. And to bring any other sacrifice to the altar would be, at, at best, horrendous. An insult to the God of heaven. This must be pure. This must be holy. That is the requirement. We see the prophet Isaiah say, said, He had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53. The Apostle John in 1 John 3, 5 says this, And ye know that he, Christ, was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Similar words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he who hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know what the Apostle Paul's ability is there in 15 words is to sum up the gospel. Within 15 words, within two verses, in fact one verse there, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that he, that we, forgive me, might be made the righteousness of God in him. This sacrifice, this lamb, the one that John the Baptist says, look, there he is, the lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. How do you find that tonight? There might be part of your heart and your mind saying, we have heard these things. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Christ lived a life of complete perfection and obedience. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 15. I want to say to you, this verse is huge. And I want to say to you also, I cannot fully comprehend it. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I was talking with Russell about this and Darren for some help. We are tempted. We have to daily deal with that sin issue, or as the Apostle Paul would say, that sin principle that is within us. Within us, Russell said this morning, out of the mouth 
it is that which defiles us. It comes out of the heart. We have to deal with those temptations. But I want to say the difference with you and Christ, with me and Christ, is those temptations for us are in, internal. Those which Christ was tempted with was external. In him is no sin, no, in thought, nor in deed. It was external. Think of his temptations of the devil. It was external. We battle with that which is internal. And we deal with them daily, do we not? Christ lived a life of complete and perfect obedience. Hear that, friends. I want to say to you tonight, I don't think we have emphasized that enough. Christ's life as well as his death. Perfect obedience. And not you or I know what it means to be perfectly obedient. Yet this Christ, when Pilate said there was no fault in him, this ignorant Roman governor had no idea what he was saying. But he was right. There is no fault in this lovely Jesus. There is no fault in Christ. And tonight, I want to say to you, his life is imperative, not just his death. His life, theologians call it active obedience. Active obedience. The fulfilling of the law. Christ fulfilled the law. The demand, as you read through the Old Testament, there is a high demand. I'm reading through uh, the Bible at the moment, again, chronologically. Reading through the latter parts again of Deuteronomy. And, it's, and it makes me go like this. My goodness. The demands of the law. The standard is perfection. The standard is holiness. The standard is obedience. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. And I couldn't do it. And that is why, my friends, I'm calling you tonight to look again, not only at the death. And in no way do we want to minimalize that. Oh, quite the opposite. But go on from here and consider the life of the Lamb. Consider His perfection. Consider His active obedience in fulfilling the law. We often and rightly, of course, speak of Christ. And again, theologians would call it passive obedient. That being paying the price for sin in his death. But I know I speak for myself and I hope it, I can speak for you in some part. We must consider his life. When we break bread, of course we remember his death. We look to his coming. We're called to look to his life. Called to look to his life. Christ, the perfect man. Christ, the one who did obedience perfectly. All my friends tonight, thank God that he did. Again, we could spend maybe weeks, hours upon this subject. Hopefully learn from one another. 
But if at any moment, friends, if at any moment that lamb became blemished, that sacrifice would not have been fit. There'd be no atonement. Thank God he did. Thank God for the life of Christ. This making the perfect and only sacrifice. A lamb without blemish. Hear what the late R.C. Sproul said on this subject. It was by his sinlessness that Jesus qualified himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. However, our salvation requires two aspects of redemption. It was not only necessary for Jesus to be our substitute and receive the punishment due for our sins, he also had to fulfill the law of God perfectly to secure the merit necessary for us to receive the blessings of God's covenant. That is huge. In order to receive that these blessings, that these promises that we say yes and amen to, we needed a perfect lamb. We needed something that was, that was, was, was required. And what it was, my friends, is that it was Christ came as that lamb. And was man. And that manhood lived a perfect life. Jesus not only died as the perfect for the imperfect. You hear that? He didn't only die as the perfect for the imperfect. The sinless for the sinless, sinful. But he lived the life of perfect obedience required for our salvation. Truly. Our substitute. And you've heard, haven't you? We've talked here over these last nearing two years of being together, of the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ. But I'm saying to you tonight, friends, brothers, sisters, in the Lord, we must look at, at him as a substitute in life and in death. Yes, he died a death, he died in your place. He died and was punished. And the wrath of God, you remember when we looked at that word, propitiation? The wrath of God was poured, apart, poured upon this lamb. Penal substitution. That which we deserved. But tonight, I want to encourage you, as I have been encouraged too, look at the life of Christ. For he's not just a substitute in, in death, but also in his life. He did what we ought to have done, and that was fulfill the demands of the law. Fulfilling the law of God on our behalf, and dying in our place as a guilty sinner. That is the full gospel, friends. That is substitutionary atonement at its best. That is the glorious mystery that Paul speaks of. Apostle Paul sums it up in Romans 5 verse 19. I would ask that you would turn to it. And I would ask that you would have a good read of the context. Romans 5 verse 19. 
Again, the Apostle Paul was truly gifted in helping us understand the gospel. Romans 5 verse 19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. For by one man's disobedience, many many were made sinners. What is the Apostle Paul there referring to? Adam. In Adam, all die. Adam is our father. We belong to Adam. But then he says this, the Apostle Paul says this, and thank God he does. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. By the obedience of Jesus Christ many will be or shall be made righteous. That's a lovely thing to consider. That yes, we had a great fall. I don't think tonight there'd be anybody who would want to disagree with the reality of Adam as our federal head. Your sin proves that. The way in which you once lived proves that. But as we come to the climax, the imperative of the gospel, we consider the man Christ Jesus and his perfect obedience. And for you and me tonight here humbly in this small village church to understand what sinlessness is, is impossible. It is impossible. That's why as Russell laboured hard this morning to paint, if you like, this, this picture of, of the depth of sin, the depravity of the heart, because what that does is for one who has seen Christ to one who has been transferred from darkness into this glorious light, what it does, it just makes us want to raise our hands and say, this is my saviour. This is what I have been brought from. This is what I have been saved from. And that is what I have been saved to. Again, the, the clever ones amongst us would call it Imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. And let me say it simply. We have children with us. And that means this. If you have faith in Christ. If you have believed upon him. His righteousness is yours. That's the beauty of the gospel. His obedience, if you like, is ours. Those those boxes have been ticked. Law done, completed, fulfilled. It is ours by faith. And by faith alone. If you tonight, dear friends, have been truly born of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Father sees Christ's righteousness when he looks upon you.
This really does away with that so-called doctrine of once saved, always saved. Or you can lose your salvation. It's been imputed to you, friends. You've been sealed. It's done. Like Christ's life was, was not in vain. And Christ's death, my friends, was never going to be in vain. In vain. His righteousness tonight, if you have truly been washed, if you truly know that Christ is your saviour, tonight before him in the courts, you have been justified. That is a legal term. Tonight you are justified. Why? Because Christ not only died in order to save you, but he lived To save you. He lived to save you. Being justified by faith. Romans 5 verse 1. The page might be in front of you. Therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God. How? Have you ever read through Romans? Have you read through Colossians? Have you ever read through the great epistles? How? How am I justified? How is it that I have peace? How am I being made right to God the Father? Paul the Apostle labours it time and time again. And he does it with purpose and he does it with definiteness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is of Christ. And Christ alone. subject which is huge a subject which we must return to personally in our private thought as we read through those precious gospels as we go on into the epistles and we see this declaration as we read through those Old Testament books we read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy we see and me and Russell have talked about this so often in fact it was Russell who who pointed this out to me some years ago, that Moses was never going to go to the promised land, friends. If you read the story, you think, wow, it's harsh, isn't it? Moses the man. Remember? He gets told you're not going. Who was it? Who was it who was going to lead the people to the promised land? It was Joshua. Which is Yeshua, which is Jesus, which means Saviour. Why was Moses not going to take him there? Moses was never going to take the people into the promised land for this reason. The law cannot save you. The law can't save you. The law cannot bring you from death to life. It is Yeshua, it is Joshua, it is Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who has brought it, the one who has lived it, the one who has been punished for it. It is Saviour, Jesus Christ the righteous. How are you saved? Through Jesus Christ. You may say, that's nothing new. Absolutely, you're right, it's nothing new. But it's the tune that we will play and we will play. It is the tune and the message we shall hum. It is the tune and the message we shall sing. For there is salvation in no other. 
In no other name under heaven can man be saved except through Jesus Christ. And tonight, friends, as we draw this to a close, the Christ who lived a life of sinlessness, yes, friends, yes, in your place. The Christ who died as one who had broken every law, think on that. This sinless man, this pure one, this one who had come from heaven, he who knew no sin, bore the sin of many, that you made me made righteousness in him. We're not talking enough about substitutionary atonement. I believe it's the most misunderstood truth in the church today. And I want to say to you tonight, it's glorious. It is glorious. And I finish with asking you, my friends, tonight, what have you done with that Christ? Have you believed upon him? Children, have you believed upon him? Brothers and sisters tonight, have you truly repented of your sin, turned from darkness, looked upon the light? It's a grand question. It's an eternal living question. For your eternity depends upon it. You may say, I'm in him. And I know I've been washed in his blood tonight. You know what I say to you tonight? Go home with a leap in your step. Go home full of joy. Go home knowing this, that no one, as again we heard this morning, no one, no man, nor height, nor depth, no pestilence, no sword, nothing, my friends, nothing tonight can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray.